Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is J.W. Chu, and today we're joined by another good friend and past roommate of mine, Jason Manley. Welcome to a brand new world. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, JW. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Um, so just to get us started, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience, talk about kind of what you're currently researching, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I am a PhD candidate at the Rockefeller University in New York City right now. And I work in the Laboratory of Neurotechnology and Biophysics. Mm-hmm. So we are basically interested in, I would say about half the lab is interested in building neuroimaging techniques and other neurotechnology mm-hmm. techniques. We basically want to be able to peer into the brain of laboratory model organisms and see what's going on and try to make sense of this. And so I've, I'm mostly in the other half of the lab, which is neuroscientists. And I would call myself a computational neuroscientist, meaning mm-hmm. I, one on one hand, I use computational tools to, that, to try to understand what's going on in the brain. So like software. So you know, Exactly. So my day-to-day mm-hmm. is like software engineering, data science-y kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also by computational neuroscience, I mean we try to understand what computations are the brain actually doing um, mm-hmm. in order to kind of take in information from the environment, combine it with um, internal states, models, things like hunger or attention, right? in order to generate adaptive behavior, which we know the brain is so good at doing. So uh, it's a really cool place to, one, have access to crazy, cutting-edge technology resources, and then try to see what we can make uh, with these massive data sets we're generating. You make a really interesting point, um, because, you know, back in the day, our only way of studying the brain was corpses or someone that actually (laughs) already had... um, some type of problem in their brain, um, whether yeah. it be a rod was stuck inside the brain and they miraculously survived, and then we were able to study their um, their actions and their behavior. And now it looks like, you know, kind of going into the past, a lot of the physicists kind of developed all these technologies, but it comes to EEG, MEG, fMRI. These are the things that we mostly use these days. Um, but it's my understanding that you're using something different um, to do your analyses. Um, so why don't we actually first go over kind of what's existing um, mm-hmm. and what their pitfalls are, which I know it's either going to be a trade-off between um, time or space, which is kind of funny because yeah. that, that's a phrase you'd mostly hear in physics. Um, so what we're doing now with your research. Yeah, of course. So, I guess, so when you think about neuroimaging in general, right, I would say there's kind of two two types of data you can collect, right? You can collect structural images of the brain, right? So this would be like a basic MRI, a CT scan, something like you you would imagine you could also go in and when you've broken your arm, right? And they take a scan and they basically see what the, what, what the structure looks like, right? So you can do this from the brain. Um, but generally what we care about when we're thinking about the computations going on inside of the brain is more functional imaging, we refer to it. So we want to see the, the, essentially the dynamics of the neurons in the brain. And so there are lots of different techniques 
to do this, right? All the different trade-offs. Um, mm-hmm. Going way back, there's uh, a lot of the work started with more electrophysiological techniques, right? So, okay. you know, when a neuron fires, there's a current that's generated and also electrical right. potentials. So this is what is done, um, for example, in EEG. Mm-hmm. When you uh, basically stick these electrodes to the scalp of someone, you may have seen these images of people with looking like wires coming off their heads. Right, right. And you can basically measure the uh, voltage fluctuations underneath mm-hmm. these electrodes that are placed against the scalp. Or in some cases, for example, when a human is having uh, a ner- brain surgery already, they can mm-hmm. stick it inside the brain, actually. Yeah, I remember and, seeing in the news um, some person was playing the violin <laughs> while they were go- undergoing surgery, and they were also doing like a study while they were like correcting whatever um, problems that they had n- neurologically. Um, but they were using that as a way to understand how the brain is used um, in actually creating music. So um, that's actually really interesting. Yeah, exactly. I think as uh, I'm not a human neuroscientist, but human neuroscientists uh, have a great um, opportunity to take advantage of doing research studies when people go in, for example, if they have epilepsy or another neurological disease where they're going to have a uh, intracranial surgery anyway, right? Mm-hmm. We, they can learn a lot while that's going on. Right. And it's crazy that, you know, obviously if you're playing the violin, you can't be under anesthesia. Um, so I'm yeah. assuming it was all local. Like then they felt their head being drilled into essentially to place these electrodes. That's a really crazy thought. I think it's important actually to keep uh, a human awake during their surgeries because you want to make sure you don't poke or prod anything that's important. For example, for the violinist, right? Mm-hmm. You want to make sure they're still able to play the violin. Oh, that's true. Like you yeah. start poking around the motor regions, like oh, I can't move my finger. Oh yeah, that'd be that'd be exactly that. Yeah. So how is it that um, in an EEG um, when it is placed on top of the scalp, how how does how does it pick up like past the skull? <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? So essentially the way it works is mm-hmm. you'll, you'll never be able to see the voltage fluctuations that is due to a single neuron. Mm-hmm. But if you imagine that you have an electrode placed on the scalp um, above you know, one region of the cortex, for example, which is the surface layer of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, you place it above visual cortex. And you imagine you show a movie to someone millions of neurons are going to start firing, right? Okay. So what EEG actually detects are voltage fluctuations due to tons and tons of neurons, right? Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of neurons, right? Mm-hmm. So, and you can do this very fast, right? Because as I think we all know, you know, electrical currents travel very quickly, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but you have low spatial resolution, right? Because you kind of have to integrate over this and you know that's kind of... Um, in physics, right, they they know very well how uh, voltages kind of decay over space and how that's attenuated kind of by the skull. Oh, I see. But as long as you have enough kind of voltage fluctuations underneath, you're actually able to detect some signal. Okay, that makes sense. And then I'm assuming that MEG, which is the use of magnets, has the opposite problems, right? So this is one case. Actually, uh, in MEG, it is... Mm-hmm. Um, basically just as good in time because you imagine oh really yeah okay the way meg works is instead of detecting Mm -hmm. these voltage changes you detect the magnetic fields that are generated by 
the currents in the brain, right? Whenever you have a current, physics tells you you also have a, a magnetic field. Right, right, right. So as far as I understand that temporally it's the same, um, but you can actually get a little better spatially. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a trickier technique um, to kind of localize these magnetic fields, though. Right, you have the problem where you can kind of measure the magnetic field on the scalp and you kind of have to infer where were the currents inside the brain that generated these magnetic fields. Oh, I see. Okay. And then I think this is kind of the precursor to your research right now, mm -hmm. um, but two-photon calcium microscopy. Um, it's the first time I ever heard this <laughs> type of imaging. So um, if you could kind of go over what that is, um, how it came about in the sense of, um, and also what it's used for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is now... Um, I think people are probably a little bit familiar with these kind of techniques that are also used in humans, EEG, MEG. Uh, mm -hmm. Two-photon microscopy is a very, uh, a much more invasive procedure, right? And uh, mm -hmm. basically just still in the lab for now. Um, sure. But the idea is that, okay, voltages... So the idea is we want to record activity now instead of from tens of thousands of neurons or more to actually see the activity of single neurons. Right. Gotcha. So you could imagine you could take an electrode, right, and get it very close to the cell and measure its current, um, mm -hmm. or the the voltage uh, due to the firing of that neuron. But that's hard to scale up, right? To to get right. all these electrodes close to many many neurons, right? It's just really hard to do. So um, instead, what has uh, become popular in uh, the research field of neuroscience is to use imaging techniques, um, right? So then you can, for example, like you imagine with a camera, right? You can image a large field of view, but we have to figure out how you can translate um, neural activity into something that you can actually image, right? Right. And so the way that works is you can, using laboratory model organisms like a, a, a mouse or a rat or a fly or something like this, you can actually either inject dyes into these neurons or um, uh, basically transfect them w with a virus uh, oh, into the neurons okay. that causes these neurons to uh, instructs the, the neurons actually to build a fluorescent protein that then will fluoresce oh. when the neuron is active. Interesting. Okay. Right. So we live in the world of glowing brains, right? Like oh, okay. basically when a neuron fires, uh, what we, what we will detect is an increase in fluorescence, right? Light that's emitted from that neuron. And that's due to these specially, um, engineered indicators. Uh, and what we use a lot in our lab are calcium indicators. So mm -hmm. what happens when the neuron fires is that, that, you know, there's, uh, a lot of ions, right. Go in and out of the the neuron in order to create what mm -hmm. we know as the action potential. And one of those ions is calcium. And right. it, and it turns out that, uh, you can actually engineer a really nice calcium indicator that will, um, fluoresce, uh, as the calcium concentration increases in the cell, which happens when the neuron is active. Do these levels of fluorescence change depending on how strong a signal is, or is it all just a zero one binary outcome? It does, right? So I would say the calcium fluorescence signal we detect is basically proportional to the firing rate of the neuron. Mm -hmm. What we lose by not detecting actually 
the voltage in a neuron is that one, our indicator has some time scale, right? Which becomes active and then becomes inactive. So you see a kind of temporally smeared version of this. And also just the calcium dynamics in the cell are slower than the extra potential. Um, gotcha. So you imagine you we lose a little bit of temporal resolution, right? But we still have temporal resolutions of, you know, on the order of hundreds of milliseconds, right? So you could detect oh, okay. single action potentials if they're sparse enough. Or if not, if your neuron is firing a lot, you kind of detect fluorescence proportional to its firing rate. Okay. So the way I see it, um, for EEG, MEG, fMRI, these are great in terms of non-invasive, mm-hmm. um, and they're great for kind of a general area. Um, if you were to kind of use the terminology, I think that's used in in the field. Like you can cr- you can pretty much capture a voxel, which is like a three D pixel, yeah. right? Whereas with two photon calcium microscopy, you can actually see the individual neurons within a single voxel or several voxels. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay. So that kind of comes to the next portion of where I think neuroimaging, which is, I don't think, in, not in terms of like time linearness, but um, just another thing that's been going on is so much work with the human connectome. And I know we've, I, I talked about this with David a little bit, but on uh, my last episode, but, and by the way, for all of our viewers, we were all roommates together. <laughs> <This is how laughs> yeah. I, I know them. <laughs> uh, but, so with the connectome, it's essentially mapping out every single neuron within an, in an organism's brain, right? And I think the ones that we have the whole connectome for are like C. elegans or Drosophila. Um, but now we're currently in the process of doing that for humans. Um, so how are these two different imaging techniques related? Yeah, so kind of like I alluded to earlier, Right. We have the difference between a more structural imaging technique and a functional imaging technique. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, the goal of the connectome, connectome is to identify basically um, uh, all of the, the neurons in a brain and their, the connections between them, essentially. Mm-hmm. So you brought yeah. up C. elegans, right, which is this um, tiny little uh, it's it's a nematode, but basically a worm. Right. Which in the uh, 80s, I believe, Sydney Brenner's lab painstakingly identified all 300 or so of these neurons and the like thousands of connections between them, right? Mm-hmm. And so all these neurons have names, right? I love this because I'm used to working. In- they named each one. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Exactly. <laughs> each neuron has a name, right? So you, you when you go to another uh, worm person, right? Someone studying Cialgans, you can say, oh. Uh, yeah, I'm studying neuron AIA, for example. Oh, I thought it'd be more interesting. I thought they'd be like John and Jason or something. Okay, yeah. okay, AIA. Well, you know, everything has to be an acronym or something, I guess. Right. So, right, all these neurons have names. They know how they're connected, right? But you don't know. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess what you can do from that is you can kind of um, guess or hypothesize, really, what roles these neurons might be involved in. So you can see... I think um, one thing they saw with the, the C. elegans connectome early on is that there seems to be about a third of the neurons that seem to be sensory neurons, right? They're like seem close to sensory organs and then project into the uh, further into the organism. There's kind of interneurons that are between sensory and motor, and then there's motor neurons, right, which are clearly connected to muscles. And so just looking at the map, you can kind of make some guesses as to what these circuits might be doing. But... Mm-hmm. Um, 
at least our argument, right, from the functional imaging perspective, is that to really understand the dynamics of neural computation, what an animal is doing as it either performs a behavior or makes a decision between two behaviors, you have, have to see um, temporally resolved the dynamics of these neurons um, as a function of time. So I think connectomes are really great kind of hypothesis generating machines, right? And it's, of course, nice to, to know what are all the neurons and how are they connected. But there has been a debate in the field about how useful is this really? Like, what did we really learn from a connectome? Gotcha. So it, it, it sounds like it's more of a stepping stone in this whole endeavor of understanding how the brain works more so than something like that revolutionary. Obviously, you know, we're comparing something that has 300 neurons, I think you said, yeah. to, to an organism such as ourselves that have tens of billions of neurons. Exactly. So the scale is much different, but un- understood. Um, so I guess the next step is understanding in terms of the functional model that you're trying to create. Um, my understanding is that you, your team um, has created something called light beat microscopy, which is like an evolution or another step um, from the two-photon microscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of go into the details of what the differences are um, and why, you, why this method is superior in some ways? Sure, yeah. So um, uh, it's been a pleasure to be a user of light beam microscopy and a kind of data analysis person. But uh, this mm-hmm. was um, invented by Jeffrey Demis, a postdoc who was in our lab, and uh, a team along with my advisor, Ali Pasha Vaziri. Right? So basically the goal going into um, building the light beads microscope was to kind of build a what we call spatio-temporally optimal acquisition system for two-photon okay. calcium imaging. <laughs> yeah, I'll break that down. So yeah. the way you create an image in two-photon calcium imaging is that you actually mm-hmm. scan. So you're doing fluorescence, right? So you excite mm-hmm. a region of your sample with a laser. Um, this excites your fluorescent indicator. And then your fluorescent indicator um, will fluoresce, emit photons proportional to the activity of that neuron. Mm-hmm. Um, if it right, if it's if the, your laser excitation spot is on a neuron, mm-hmm. so you build an image by basically scanning a, a point around your volume, basically the brain, right? And then you collect photons at every point, and then after you scan this, you build an image, right? Uh, okay. So you can imagine this is a lot slower than like your camera, right? Your camera, mm-hmm. um, right? You just snapshot, expose everything at once. Yeah, like the light is there already. Not We don't have to shine the light. Yeah, right? of course. Like yeah, step. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, but the uh-huh. advantage of doing this is, is when you carefully excite and detect all photons from one little um, pixel in your, your sample, uh, one, you know exactly where all of your photons came from already. And two, you can get um, much better signal-to-noise in the case of fluorescence where it's actually a relatively few number of photons that are emitted um, Mm. by a sample. And the other good thing about this is you can do two-photon relatively deep into tissue, right? As you can imagine, it's hard to get light in and out of a brain. Mm -hmm. But with two-photon, you can go um, at least about half a millimeter into cortex, which doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, for mm-hmm. neural imaging, that's uh, that's uh, pretty relatively deep into into cortex for us. 
because we've been stuck at the cortex level at this point, right? The very, very surface. So the fact that we can even go in, in a little bit deeper with even more sp like spatial resolution is is the main selling point, right? Of course, yeah. So that's the tricky thing. It's hard to go deep while maintaining single neuron resolution because you can imagine basically um, tissue is relatively opaque, right? And scatters light, mm -hmm. right? So you can imagine right. trying to get light in and out of a, a brain sample is hard. We are we're able to image into um, the the first uh, layers of cortex, right? So uh, the cortex, which is this um, uh, area of the brain on the surface of the brain, think of like a, you like put a napkin on top of, top of your your head, right? That's like mm -hmm. your cortex, right? This layer on the top. Yeah. And with two photon imaging, we can go maybe about halfway as deep into the cortex. Okay. Right, we're going to need to start pushing further techniques that will allow us to go even deeper into the brain. For like cortexes and everything, right? All these right. midbrain structures, the hypothalamus, and all these other things that are right. really important for lots of different kinds of things we can't reach with these techniques. Um, and there are further techniques. For example, three photon microscopy. Turns oh, okay. Plus one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Turns out you can go deeper. Um, uh -huh. uh, but then even past that, right, we're going to have to think hard about how do you actually uh, get signal from deep into the brain without kind of, you know, you could just naively um, remove the upper layers of the brain and then get your microscope close. But, you know, we kind of want to keep the brain as intact as possible. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't want to be observing something that's pretty much half brain dead, right? Yeah. Okay, so I guess this kind of implies that we're able to capture a lot more information, at least from the paper mm -hmm. I heard. Um, it was you know, multitudes, much more data than you could ever get from an fMRI or I mean the other um, imaging techniques that we discussed. Doesn't that kind of pose as in itself an issue of trying to process all this new data? It, it, like how how have you since you know you're a computational neuroscientist, like how how have you approached this larger data set? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've hit it right on the head, right? This is the this is the challenge moving forward, especially even like we're thinking about trying to disseminate microscopes like this, but without mm -hmm. without an, uh, like a software infrastructure, right, or something in place to to help people one just pre-process the data and then two make sense of it. It's quite a challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the hardest thing moving forward. So to give you a sense of the data we're collecting with Lightbeats, um, we right so we record raw images, which are essentially um, contained neurons firing. Uh, so we see photons proportional to their activity rates, and then we have to do this um, process of basically finding where are the neurons in these images, right, mm -hmm. and then extracting their activity, right. So we basically look oh. for you know, um, uh, kind of basically circles in these images that over time mm. their fluorescence changes as a function of time. And then we find these and call them neurons. There are automated algorithms that do this, but as we scale up to these large fields of views, it becomes computationally expensive, right? Oh, okay. And we're able to extract with our largest fields of views up to 1 million neurons simultaneously, right? Which is crazy. This is about 10% of neurons in cortex. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, towards cortex-wide imaging, or at least dorsal cortex, the, the most outermost layer of cortex. 
Um, so, so one, there needs to be a lot of work and how can we, you know, without having to resort to supercomputers and crazy things like this, how can we process these raw images? We're collecting many, many terabytes in a, in a single day of recording easily, right? How do we process this, store all this data? And, um, and then there's potentially the more interesting challenge of then trying to make sense of, you know, okay, I, if I hand you a temporal time series of a million neurons, mm-hmm. uh, and then ask you, so what, so what is the brain doing, right? Like, mm-hmm. what do we learn from, from looking at the activity of all these neurons simultaneously, right? That we couldn't have mm-hmm. gained by, say, just imaging consecutively a bunch of smaller fields of view. Gotcha. So my takeaway, at least just thinking about it, is that there must be a lot of, of noise that's associated with this data. Um, and the larger that this field of vision gets, when you say let's go from a million to 10 million to 20 million, whatever it might be, you know, there might be correlations between two different, completely different areas, but that correlation might really be consistent in all the tasks that are given or whatever the case might be. Um, Is that kind of the next step is kind of understanding what is and isn't noise or what is important in a certain behavior? Of course, yeah. So I think to break down what you mean by noise, right? Because this can this can mean a lot of different things to different people, um, right? So there's like noise on the images, right? So you, like you know, everyone knows if you take an image in low light, you get kind of a grainy picture, right? Uh, so there's yeah. like noise on our time traces, right? But even if you assume, right, that um, we have really great signal to noise ratio on all our neurons. I think the noise you're referring to and that I like to think about in neuroscience is the fact that we see neurons firing mm-hmm. um, and it, it seems almost probabilistic or noisy in the sense that, you know, we can't account for every firing event that we see in our, our data, right? Mm-hmm. I think neuroscientists have this, um, this view of neurons almost, at least in like cortical areas, as kind of being almost promiscuous, you know, like they have these, they're like constantly firing. And it's like, how do we actually account for every spike that the neurons making? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, for example, you show the same image to a mouse over and over and you record activity, in its visual cortex and you count the number of spikes that neurons make, even neurons that are very faithful to certain visual stimuli, meaning they fire a lot when you show certain images or something like this, there's variability across presentations of the image. Um, and so I think one of the really exciting things that you can do once you image the whole brain or, you know, towards whole brain imaging is you can try to build a model to account for each neuron to say, okay, is this difference in spikes count across different presentations of the same image or repetition of the same behavior? Is this totally just noise, right? Like, like who knows? We don't know. Or can you actually account for the fact that like, oh, look, there's another brain region that we were able to image simultaneously that's firing rate actually seems to correlate, right? And then you might be able to, this is a little observational, right? Obviously, right? Just looking for correlations and things. But then you might be able to generate hypotheses about how these brain regions might be connected and how can we actually account for everything that's going on? So like, is the firing of a neuron just totally kind of probabilistic and random and has noise to it or does every spike actually have a meaning that's being conveyed from some other brain region that you weren't able to see originally? And then is that actually 
part of the computation that's going on in the brain that gives rise to you know whatever behavior you're interested in. So I, I'm, from this conversation, I'm getting the sense that everything that we're doing, whether it's the connectome or light bead microscopy, this is more a push for once we have all the techniques down, it's, it's like a hypothesis generating endeavor more than anything else. Um, so we're, we're, the ability to actually take in all this data is like step one in any type of experiment, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what you're working on right now. Um, but I, I do want to touch on your work with zebra, uh, zebra, <laughs> zebra fish <laughs> and kind of taking them from their larval stages and then introducing them to a little bit of discomfort and then training them to flick their tail left or right. I mean, this is a little bit more of an application mm -hmm. rather than theory. So could you kind of take us through what you did in that study? Yeah, definitely. So again, this is a study I helped out, helped out with, but was led by another postdoc in the lab, Qian Lin. Um, mm -hmm. And Qian and I, uh, we both, uh, so I think we, I've been talking about cortex, right, and humans and um, mice is what we normally do with light bead microscopy. But you can't image the whole brain, right, and even a mouse right now. Mm -hmm. So what Chan and I um, really like is this model organism, the larval zebrafish, right? So these are basically tiny tadpoles, and their brain size is about a millimeter long, right? And so you oh, can, okay. yeah, so you can use a microscope like Lightbeads microscope or another calcium imaging technique um, to image the whole brain simultaneously, right? Mm -hmm. And then that's a fun challenge because then, you know, you have all the information about what's going on in the brain, right? It's kind of like in C. elegans, you had the whole connectome. It turns out in C. elegans, you can also do whole brain or whole animal imaging. And so then it's like the fun challenge to a neuroscientist is like, you have no excuse, right? Like you can see everything <laughs> right. that's going on in the brain. Um, mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is there's still so much we don't know, right? We can record the activity of every neuron simultaneously in a larval zebrafish, and there's still so much we don't know about um, how these uh, activity give rise to behavior. So what Xian did... So what's the roadblock then? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the roadblock, I mean, to give it away, right, is kind of, you know, just having the data isn't enough, right? One, right. we need good hypotheses and good models for how the brain works, right? And we're learning more and more as we record larger brain regions that the brain seems to be a distributed computing device. It doesn't seem to be some feed-forward network where you just take an input, compute some function, and then do outputs, right? It seems to be a real complicated network where networks of brain regions together, um, from sensory to higher-level cognitive brain regions, together somehow give rise to uh, learning, memory, right? All these and all these interesting behaviors. So Qian um, wanted to take one step into actually studying decision-making. How does an animal um, decide, you know, which action to perform out of the set of actions it might perform? And so she um, used a paradigm where essentially you train the fish to flick its tail in a certain direction. So these are little tadpoles, right? We image their brain and they can um, still flick their tails, around, right? So we have some readout of behavior. And she would heat them up with a, a little infrared laser spot. Mm -hmm. And this um, would be a very mild but aversive stimulus, right? 
these, okay, these... so no zebrafish were uh, were harmed during <laughs> this uh, experiment. <laughs> no, not too not too bad during the imaging, right? Um, uh, yeah, so they get this mild aversive stimulus, and it turns out that the these seven day old tadpoles, essentially, is what they are, can learn to flick their tail, for example, to the left in order to turn off this aversive heat stimulus, right? So Chen would track their tail as a function of time, and when they turn to the left, turn it off. Oh, okay. And so she found that, um, right, she could train these fish, right, to flick their tail in a certain direction, then she could do it again, like, okay, now I'm going to train the same fish to flick their tail to the right to make sure, you know, it's not oh, just some, okay. some bias, right? And these fish, I mean, there's some percentage of fish that can do this. Not every fish is a great learner right away. Maybe I just needed more time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, maybe we're too impatient. But, you know, some percentage of the fish can learn to do this. And then she was able to record their whole brain dynamics during this behavior. And um, this was uh, an, a case kind of like you were alluding to before where there wasn't totally a, a, a clear hypothesis how the brain generates this behavior. But you can use these um, whole brain or large volume imaging techniques as kind of a screening device, like what brain regions are even active during this behavior, kind of like fMRI has been used a lot in humans, like what, you know, what's even going on, but we can still see single neurons. Gotcha. So she was able to find that actually um, about 10 seconds before the fish made their movement to the left or right. There was a specific mm-hmm. population of neurons actually in the cerebellum of the fish, mm-hmm. um, which predicted which direction the fish was going to move, right? So this is kind of, uh, we call it pre-motor um, activity, which is related mm-hmm. to motor planning and decision-making. Uh, so that's, this kind of brings into the the big question of, do we have free will in a way? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's kind of scary. So. If we were to extrapolate, and obviously this isn't a great example, but before I reach out to grab my coffee every morning, something in my cerebellum might have already made that decision in terms of how I'm actually going to reach for it. It's kind of, if we were to put this in a little bit more real, um, mundane, kind of real life terms. Totally. I mean, you, you when you think about going throughout your day and doing all the things you do, right? So you have certain goals mm-hmm. in mind, right? So you already have mm-hmm. the goal of you woke up and you feel like you need caffeine now, right? Mm-hmm. So then you had to, right, you had this goal in mind, and then your brain had to choose among all the actions it could do, right? Stay in bed or get out of bed, go make coffee, you know? And then even simple things, your your brain has to kind of make the decision that, you know, I'm going to reach towards my coffee cup and take a sip. And then also mm-hmm. has to, you know, control all the muscles to do this in a way, right? And so she was able to find that... Um, yeah, it's actually this long time scale. Ten seconds before the fish would move, you could see in its brain which way it was actually going to go. Interesting. So does this mean that, you know, let's say in the zebrafish, they've already decided which way to direct their tail, but they might not have, and I, I don't know if you've actually captured this data, but in the more higher order regions of the brain, <laughs> did it take time for that portion to say, yeah, let's take it left or take it right? Yeah, interesting question. So I think there's a lot more work to be done to dissect exactly how all these region, regions, brain regions are related because we know there are multiple brain regions involved in this behavior because if you, for example, lesion or stimulate certain brain regions other than the cerebellum, there's also impacts, um, mm. prevents this animal from making the correct decision. Um, 
one thing you can look at just from the data, right, is like when does a brain region kind of become active, right? Right. Um, leading up to this behavior, right? So from the time that you turn on the heat that is mildly mm-hmm. aversive to the time that the fish makes a decision, right, there's kind of a almost a, a path through which information flows through the circuits. So sensory mm-hmm. um, brain regions, uh, their activity increases quite. They're going to fire. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like I'm uncomfortable now. And then probably uncomfortableness is like amygdala or something along those lines, more emotion based. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to distinguish, right? What is the feeling of comfortable and what is just like representation of heat, right? So there are all Mm -hmm. all these variables you have to to disentangle, but at least the presence of heat, right? (laughs) That's Uh all we can say carefully. Interesting. So it sounds like, you know, so far our study of the brain and kind of what's kind of out there right now, they would focus on one region. Uh, the way I kind of said mm-hmm. it now is the amygdala is, is really important for emotions. Mm-hmm. But obviously we don't know exactly how heat turns into uncomfortableness, which turns into an emotion, which then turns into some type of action or decision. Exactly. So these are, there's so many different, as you have alluded to, different processes that are going, that are both working at their own time, but also kind of like a network spending that sending that data to different regions of the brain essentially mm-hmm. so now we have different states of different systems within the brain but then there is also the general state of the brain so it, it almost sounds like we're getting into more of a model of understanding rather than a single neuron or a, a, an area of the brain but one area of the brain another area of the brain how do they communicate and what what's the actual process and how does that how do those processes actually end up as a whole state? Mm-hmm. So I, I imagine that there are like millions and millions of different iterations of different types of states, and we would have to create a model based on those. Is kind of the next direction we're taking this towards. Would Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it, right? So I think one, what what whole brain imaging, right, or large volume imaging allows you to do, right, is see these brain regions simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So you can start to, at least using a technique called functional connectivity, right? We might not know how these brain regions are connected because we don't yet have a connectome. You can look at correlations between brain regions or something like this or say, does this brain region become active before this brain region? Or even does these sets of neurons within this brain region become active before this you know, specific set of neurons in this other brain region, right? Even more finer detail mm-hmm. than brain regions. And then start to infer kind of what is the flow of information through circuits, and gotcha. I think really one of the most interesting things moving forward is understanding kind of distributed computation in the brain. Because what we see in these whole brain recordings in the larval zebrafish is it's not just like a few neurons become active and sense heat. And then that's sent to, you know, for example, these neurons in the cerebellum, which become active and then turn to the left. It really seems to be a whole brain process. The, the whole brain is essentially lighting up, right, when we do our, our calcium imaging. Um, oh, okay. And there's activity everywhere. So it's as opposed to like maybe if you're familiar with like neural networks or things like this, right, which are very kind of mm-hmm. feed forward devices, you put an input right, and definitely. it goes through a bunch of layers and then there's some output. The brain has all these loops, right? Mm-hmm. And it really seems to be a distributed computing device. And so what you were referring to as kind of maybe states of different brain regions, right? I think it's still unclear, right? How 
how much are brain regions acting separate from one another? Because we know that mm-hmm. certain brain regions are specialized for certain tasks. Right. Um, but now that we can image them simultaneously, how much are they acting separate from each other versus actually working together, but without being able to see their dynamics simultaneously, uh, we weren't able to capture that before, right? It's really more of a cooperative distributed computing effort instead of a specialized um, kind of thing. And probably it's somewhere in between, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess we obviously don't have the human connectome, Mm -hmm. um, but in the organisms that we do and we can actually record it, is it still going back to the, uh, we have all the data that is probably required to do the analysis. We just don't know how to break it down at this point. And that that's kind of where all the time is being spent at, at this like juncture in time. Yeah, I think there's some, so when you're talking about connectomes, right, there's still a lot of work for, for most organisms to, to even get a connectome, right? So there's so mm-hmm. much work that goes into you know, slicing brains, doing the electron microscopy that they do because you need to have such fine resolution to see tiny little synapses, right? So there's a huge mm-hmm. amount of work that's going into just getting these connectomes, right? And then it's like, what are we going to learn with that? And I think the, the, maybe the best case um, is in the, um, in the case of Drosophila, right, which is mm-hmm. the fruit fly. Um, mm-hmm. There's a huge effort to get the, the connectome going there, and they already have the connectome for the central brain of Drosophila, about 25,000 neurons. Um, mm-hmm. And we're already beginning to see, and I'm inspired my, by my colleagues who do study flies, um, we're beginning to see how you can even generate hypotheses just from connectivity. So say you found something interesting right, in one brain region, go to your connectome, see who's connected from it, and there are some really creative people and smart people who are already generating hypotheses that now they're going to go test with functional imaging techniques and other things like this to kind of make sense of what's going on. So the connectome gives you a lot of information about how things might be connected together and how they might be dynamically working together. But then you still have to go test this, right, and see, see what's going on. So we kind of need the, the, the map first to see how to get from point A to point B. Like, is there actually a route? And then we would use microscopy to say, okay, let's analyze these two different regions and see how they correlate with one another, essentially, is kind of, I think, what you're alluding to. Yeah, that's definitely right. One approach that I'm finding is, in, particularly in flies, is being very successful. Interesting. What, can you think of another, or has another approach been kind of been explored to date? Um, as opposed to using the connectome to generate hypotheses? Uh, as opposed to, yeah, using the connectome and then doing the the actual microscopy. Yeah. I mean, right now we don't really have connectomes for a lot of model organisms that are working on them. Right. For example, the mouse, right? And you might even say in the mouse, does it make sense? Is it even useful to have a connectome? Because there's so many mm-hmm. neurons. And it, the, the connections might not be as developmentally specified as in like a fly or a worm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe more of general trends. So there, right, there are tons of cases where you don't have the connectome, um, where you, you know, obviously can't do this approach. So you can start from functional imaging, right, and then generate hypotheses from maybe this kind of screening, you know, image a whole brain during whatever behavior you're interested in. Oh, right. Okay. So this is more like traditional. Okay. Exactly. So it's either, it feels like it's either going from the connectome route or the imaging route. And that's pretty much the two major ones 
that are currently in the, the field of research, or neuroscience right now? Yeah, I mean, kind of all, all this boils down to is what, you know, what data do we have, right, for whatever mm, organism right. we care about and, and what we can do and what's mm -hmm. going on. And then I haven't talked about it a lot today, but of course, what we really want to understand are these interesting behaviors that animals can do given the brains that they have. So then there's also this whole inspiration of, wow, we can see an animal can do this. We see a larval zebrafish can learn mm -hmm. to perform specific actions. Um, and so there are also people motivated from the behavior to then go in and use some of these techniques to figure out what's going on. Perfect. Well, that's it from me. Um, uh, do you have any kind of last words that you'd like to impart in terms of, you know, what you want to do next or what you're kind of working on now? Yeah, so I think um, one of the really interesting pushes in neuroscience is going to be how can we um, start to study these animals and behaviors in a more naturalistic setting, right? So this mm -hmm. is where you have to go then from, for example, two-photon calcium imaging, right? You have to have an animal in the lab, kind of head-restrained, right? You need to put a microscope objective basically above their brain. Um, mm -hmm. How can we go from this back to something more like fMRI or EEG, right? Where you have a human that can be performing tasks or kind of doing things. Um, so I think this, this will be a really interesting approach moving forward. How can we study more naturalistic behaviors, right? There are cool things where you can actually mount a microscope on the head of an animal, mm -hmm. right? So you can put a two photon or another type of calcium imaging microscope on the head of a mouse. I have colleagues working on this and there are people, um, a uh, number of labs doing this. And then you can study um, neural activity in freely behaving animals. Wow, I'm, I'm surprised that the, the rat isn't, or the mouse isn't able to just knock it off or something along the lines. <laughs> well, the, yeah. Or like just shake it off. They glue it pretty carefully, right? But the, the issue there oh, is, it, you know, these things can be heavy, right? So you have to make it light that right. it doesn't interfere with an animal. I'm, I'm going to imagine like even with my cat, Nora, like I, I put anything on her head and she just goes crazy. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Totally. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's kind of going from these limitations that we've, we have in the lab to something more realistic. Gotcha. Well, I totally understand the, the direction, I think, at least in neuroimaging that we're going in. So thank you so much for your time, Jason. Um, I'm sure we'll catch up. We both live in the city. Um, and thank you for listening in to another edition or another episode of A Brain New World. And I'll see you next time.